Hi there, this is Ari's Aunt Darlene. This week, police violence in Minnesota and the symbolism of the thin blue line. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Ari Shapiro filling in for Sam Sanders. This week, even as we've been reliving the trauma of George Floyd's death under a police officer's knee, two more stories have compounded that grief. The shooting death of Dante Wright in Minnesota during a police traffic stop, and also new video that shows police shooting 13-year-old Adam Toledo in Chicago. We wanted to know how all this has been affecting folks who live in Minneapolis, especially people who cover these stories for a living. So we called journalist Onika Nicole Craven. You try to take yourself out of the story because it's really not about you. But at the end of the day, um, I'm an African-American woman who lives in the state of Minnesota and Dante uh, could be me. It's been really tough. Um, You know, I have brothers and uncles uh, here in the city of Minneapolis. And, you know, every time they leave the house or they go somewhere, the idea that a routine traffic stop could end their lives and watching the trial and then you have Mr. Wright being killed just you know 10 miles away from the court it's it's really tough right now. Onika is a contributor to one of the few black newspapers in the state the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder and she told me that she's experienced that same fear during encounters with police. Um, I've been pulled over uh, for um, license plates uh, where they put the frame the black frame over the license plate that you get from the car dealership. And Minneapolis police officers, two of them, came to our car with their guns drawn, yelling at us, asking us what we were doing. And I'm like, officer, what did I do? And he said, it's the black plastic thing on your license. And as the car is going by me, I see other license plates with the license frame on there. And I'm like, you came to the car with your guns drawn at me and my passenger over something that every other car basically has and Mm. you know so we just don't know like if i would have moved wrong i i you know that could have been my life and so we're it's we're on edge we just don't know you know and we're looking at the trial we see in in all our hearts that he's guilty of killing george floyd but we know the system that has been set up against us you've also been speaking with people in your community about what life is like right now is there one interview you've done with somebody in the community that really stands out to you that you can tell us about? Yes, Anthony uh, Harmon. He's a 62-year-old man who came here from Chicago, uh, who I have known over the last several years. And when I interviewed him, he's like, I am a 60-year-old man, and there is nothing that's changed from when I was watching the civil rights movement and all that and what we're dealing with today. I can just close my eyes and you can I feel like I'm in the 60s and not in 2021, mm-hmm. right? He said, I'm a grown man and and I'm afraid for my life. I'm a, a citizen in this, this city, but I don't feel like I'm a man. When people see me going to a store, they're watching my every move. When I'm in my car, I have to make sure that my hands is visible so that the police officer who has the pistol, who has the power over me, tell me that they're afraid of what I'm going to do to them. So for you as somebody of a younger generation, hearing that from one of your elders, that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed at all. I mean, what does that say to you? 
that we have to, you know, we we had a whole thing about the election, about getting the black and brown people to vote. And then once we did, we still have people on the other side who who wants to take away and silence our vote to make sure that there is change. So, I mean, we're hurting and we just don't know where the people on the streets are hurting um, here in, in not only in Minnesota, but across the country. You know, there are journalists from all over the country, all over the world in Minneapolis right now. And you work for this black newspaper that's been around almost a century that is the voice of the community. And so what do you feel like those journalists who are just kind of parachuting in are missing that you wish they understood? That at the end of the day, we're not just tearing up businesses and starting fires and fighting with the police officers at the end of the day. We are mothers, we are daughters, we are husbands, we are wives, we are um, citizens in this city that are contributing to the makeup of who Minneapolis is. And so if they're coming in with their already bias about what they think about the black people in this community, I mean, a lot of people come in and like, here we go again. But if they could see us as being humans at the end of the day, we may have a different skin tone we might have a different background but at the end of the day we have more in common than we have differences thanks again to onika nicole craven she's a contributor to the minnesota spokesman recorder and a community activist so a day after dante wright was shot and killed by a police officer in brooklyn center minnesota people noticed something outside the police station There were two different flags flying, an American flag, and right below that, a black flag with a blue line running through the middle. The station took it down later that day. There's another version of this flag that you might have seen, one that has the stars and stripes of the American flag, but it's black and white with a single blue stripe across the middle. The symbol of the thin blue line really picked up after the 2016 shooting in Dallas that left five officers dead. For people in law enforcement, it can be a sign of pride and solidarity in the face of a dangerous job. But then it started showing up in different kinds of places. The flag was flown more and more often, and then really in 2017, it is flown at the Unite the Right white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is Maurice Shema. He's a staff writer at the Marshall Project. And that's where you see the flag really start to take on a symbolism for sort of both sides of a debate, and it almost comes to stand for the very sort of partisanship and division that has kind of dominated these conversations for the past few years. So you've seen in lots of little local news stories around the country, you see a police department or a sheriff's office Uh, fly the flag and then people either who work for the department or who live in the community saying, well, no, I think that now stands for white supremacy or I think that's... Especially after the flag was seen at the January insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Maurice has written about the origins and the evolution of the thin blue line, the phrase, the image, the flag. And it turns out this history goes way back. The actual history sort of goes back to the 19th century uh, to a British battle formation that was referred to as the Thin Red Line. Of course, there's also a famous movie with that title, and it really comes out of military circles. And then the phrase gets applied to many other situations and professions. When we were reporting on it, we were sort of surprised to find that somebody had once made a reference to a thin white line of bishops, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it stood for many different kinds of people and professions. Uh, but, but, but just the, that idea that the line, whatever the color it is, is sort of like separating order from chaos, right? It's like on one side of the line is what you don't want, and we're the people keeping the distinction. Uh, th- yes, but 
in the 20th century, as police departments increasingly come to see themselves as kind of quasi-military institutions, a lot of former military people who served in, you know, Vietnam and Korea come back and take jobs as police officers. And at the same time, you see increasing references to the Thin Blue Line, this idea that they separate, you know, order from chaos and where abroad that meant, you know, they're the front line of America fighting its enemies around the world. Now the idea is the enemy is within. The enemy is criminals and elements of disorder that seek to sort of undermine American society. Of mm. course, as we get into the 60s and 70s, we sort of, this is part and parcel of, of a kind of a racial coding, an idea that you know, no one will say that this is about race or the idea that police should enforce, um, you know, a caste system between black and white in America. But I think a lot of people start to even subconsciously sort of associate this thin blue line idea with that kind of uh, racial division. It's so interesting that the idea of the thin blue line is so closely tied to the militarization of police forces in the US, even to the point that like the phrase comes from a military idea and was brought over from like the context of war. That's right. And uh, the figure who is most associated with its spread in the United States, I mean, you see a handful of, you know, different references percolating here and there in the early 20th century, but it's really in the 1950s uh, when William H. Parker, he's a former military police chief in Los Angeles and he works with the producers of Dragnet, you know, LA's next to Hollywood. And they even had a short running television show called The Thin Blue Line that was very much about promoting Parker's idea that as in the military, you know, there's this line between uh, different kinds of Americans, those who abide by the laws and those who don't. And we need the police to be that line. It's worth noting in this context that Parker himself was very racist, very open about it. Um, he you know, compared protesters to monkeys. He compared Latinos in his purview as uh, being from the wild tribes of Mexico. I mean, just re these really awful phrases that sound extraordinarily anachronistic to us. But that's where this sort of history is hard to separate. Yeah, I didn't know any of that before I read your piece. And when I do think about the thin blue line in that context, it seems really hard to separate not only from the militarization of police, but also from this idea of the thin blue line and blue lives matter standing in contrast to racial justice protests and black lives matter. That's absolutely right. And I think the nature of any symbol is that, uh, you know, once you create a symbol, once a symbol is out there in the world, it can take on new meanings that are very different than the, the people who originated it sort of intended. In certain circles of police officers and their families, I think people really think that the flag just stands for solidarity. There's even an equivalent uh, flag that has a red line on it that's supposed to be for firefighters. And then uh, recently we saw one with a yellow line on it that can be for 911 call operators. So you've seen other sorts of emergency professions adopt this mm -hmm. image and language, and certainly all of them are not uh, simultaneously promoting white supremacy. But I think that, you know, the Trump era divided Americans, and it showed that white supremacy is a lot more common than it had sort of previously been understood to be, at least by white Americans. Um, and, you know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has made a pretty clear argument that the thin blue line flag and a lot of these other symbols are kind of the insidious version of white supremacy. But I don't think that that argument has necessarily percolated all the way to places like the Brooklyn Center Police Department. But I think this ends up getting at the really hard question that Americans are confronting, which is, is there a version of American policing that isn't tainted in some ways by white supremacy, just given the history of this country? Hmm.
I mean, I guess you could also say the American flag, the Stars and Stripes, is used by a lot of people who believe it to represent a lot of different things, and those things might be impossible to reconcile, but it's still everybody's to use, right? That's a very good point, that's, and that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, I, you know, you've also heard an argument uh, from some people that the thin blue line American flag should be done away with, not because it stands for white supremacy, but because it is a marring of the American flag, right? Um, certain kinds of reconstituting of the flag are considered violations of the sorts of flag codes that like the American Legion puts out. The American Legion has uh, held back from really making a strong statement one way or the other, But I do think that any kind of manipulation of the American flag kind of raises this question of sort of whether this symbol that's really important to all Americans, because it stands for so many different things, is getting kind of co-opted by one very particular group. There have been some bans on flying the thin blue line flag. Like even a police chief in Wisconsin said the flag had been co-opted by extremists with hateful ideologies. So do you think the balance is tipping or has tipped on what this image represents? I think it's like right there on that line, right? And if people want it to not stand for white supremacy, there has to be sort of a more open disavowing of white supremacy by people who fly the flag. And it's just not something you're really seeing yet. So I think, you know, even if it just stands for police solidarity, it also still stands for the idea that there's a divide between the police and the community, right? That there's disorder on one side and the police on the other side. And we now know that that is uh, just not the way things are, right? That police commit crimes, that police are responsible for deaths, commit even murder, right? And that many people who at one time had been sort of associated with disorder in American society, like racial justice protesters, are actually just trying to make a better country. And the the thin blue line sort of image and rhetoric does uh, contribute to this sort of idea of there being a division. So I think white supremacy aside, it already does stand for a sort of divisive vision of what law enforcement should be in America that, you know, is increasingly being challenged. Thanks again to Maurice Shema. He's a staff writer at The Marshall Project. Coming up, I chat with Misha Youssef about Islam, spirituality, and psychedelic mushrooms. We also play Who Said That? Support for It's Been a Minute and the following message come from Minnie Cooper, who wants to make sure that any time you get in your car, it feels like the best part of your week. Many designers know that it's the unique touches, from iconic racing stripes to Union Jack taillights, that bring real fun and excitement. That's why many owners can customize so much more than just the color of their car. They can tailor the design of the seats, the steering wheel, and even the interior, all to support the idea that no two Mini should be alike. And there are lots of Mini owners who take it even further, so don't be surprised if you see a Mini in leopard print or one with butterfly doors. There are many out there with truck beds, surfboard racks, and even one with snow tracks to drive on the ice in Antarctica. Because just like no two Mini are alike, no two Mini drivers are alike. But they're all pretty good together. Steer over to MiniUSA.com to explore the full 2022 lineup. Whether you're looking to discover a new series to binge, find your next great read, or check out that movie everyone's talking about, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is your guide to all things entertainment. Every weekday, we keep pop culture in high spirits. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Misha Youssef, welcome and happy Ramadan. Ramadan Mubarak. 
You know, I've I've been trying to actually say Ramzan more often these days because that's how I grew up saying it. Really? But Ramadan is the Arabic way of saying it. Yes. Misha was born in Pakistan and grew up in California. It's the Urdu way of saying it. And then in Farsi, you say like Ramazan Mubarak. So that's what your family would say to each other. Yes, they say Ramzan Mubarak. (laughs) Misha hosts the podcast Tell Them I Am. It launched its second season this week with an episode for every weekday of Ramadan. The whole goal behind putting out the podcast one every weekday of Ramadan is to celebrate something that is already such a time of community for Muslims and also to flood the media with really positive, affirmative uh, stories from Muslim people themselves that allow them to center their own stories in whatever way they want um, at a time when a lot of the stories in the media are very commonly Ramadan 101 or about um, Muslims in a more stereotypical or pigeonhole kind of way. Each episode features one person's story. The first season, in 2019, looked beyond religion and spirituality at the countless ways Muslims define themselves. Then Misha went through a bunch of harrowing life events, which changed her focus. A breakup, a job transition, the pandemic, and a near-death experience. I was just walking outside of work as a pedestrian and um, out of nowhere was run over by a car that lost control. So it was pretty brutal, really, really intense. I was like trapped between two cars, you know, hit on the head. I had like blood everywhere. And I came out of that remarkably unscathed for how intense the accident was. Um, I didn't even have a concussion. I tore my ACL, which meant a year long (laughs) recovery and learning to walk again. Wow. And and I think that's when I kind of realized that maybe there's there's more to my own relationship with Islam than I had presented in the first season. It's so interesting that this podcast, which you created as a vehicle to tell people that there is more to Muslim identity than religion, has now become a vehicle for kind of exploring spirituality and religion a little more deeply. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't planned that at all. And I think that, you know, one of the things that was really important to us in diving into spirituality and religion was staying true to that central question of what's a small moment that defines you mm. and maybe veering a little bit closer into what's a small moment that defines you where maybe you felt like you could glimpse God, God being whatever God is to you. It could be yeah. the universe. Um, it could be just a a certain feeling that you have, you know, just allowing people to go there, I think, and and asking them the right questions this season. We realized how much that was resonating with other folks who had lived through the pandemic and Hmm. um, been through some pretty intense reflective experiences of their own. And and the stories that you tell still defy stereotypes. Like, there is one episode about a woman who uses psychedelic mushrooms, which, like, maybe is often a spiritual experience, but is not necessarily often seen as a Muslim religious experience. Absolutely. And and what's amazing about that is, you know, in Islam, we know certain things like no pork, no drinking. Um, but some things are in a little bit more of an ambiguous gray zone. And shrooms are kind of in that realm. And the woman that you're referring to, um, Salma Hindi, she actually is a hijabi woman who came from a very conservative family and was really struggling with depression, trying to reconcile all these different parts of herself. And the solution that she found was in taking shrooms. And so I think like it, it kind of helped me 
it reintroduced myself to me. Like it was like Selma, meet who you actually are. Wow. You said that this was kind of inspired by your own spiritual journey. Can you talk about where you are in that journey right now? Like, I understand you're fasting for Ramadan, which is something that you didn't typically do. <laughs> yeah, there have been a few Ramadans I may have skipped. Um, nobody, t- <laughs> nobody tell God. I am fasting this year. Um, I started a series called The Quran Book Club and have been reading the Quran line by line um, from the beginning to, to the end um, every Friday. And that's something that's been really empowering and fun um, for me because nobody really gets to read the Quran in that kind of collective public setting Mm. and have really open discussions about like our life experiences in relation to it. There are a couple of things that I've tried, like um, I hadn't prayed in several years. And so I had to YouTube how to pray again, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which um, for me, it isn't just, you know, going back to faith and now becoming an incredibly practicing Muslim Um, In a traditional sense, I think it's really figuring out how I create an inclusive space for other people as well and wrestle with these things publicly, because I think that's the voice that is missing um, from a mainstream representation of Islam. You know, you said that the media tends to cover Muslims in a sort of cliche, stereotypical way. And generally speaking, the media does a lot of stories about religion, but not a lot of stories about sort of faith and belief and spirituality Mm. and and what that means, whether we're talking about Muslims or or people of another faith. I think it's very easy for the media to distill a philosophy that is complex and nuanced and a group of people who are complex and nuanced, who are wrestling with that complex philosophy into, you know, rule number one, rule number two, rule number three equals religion X. Um, And the same with others. So I think that's why we don't hear stories of faith, because it's hard. It's hard to tell stories of faith and belief and disbelief and the ebb and flow in all of that. Yeah, I remember watching the show The Leftovers on HBO Mm. and kind of being obsessed with it and thinking, oh, this is telling stories about belief and faith and spirituality that I don't think I've ever seen in scripted television before. First of all, I am obsessed with The Leftovers. Really? <laughs> yes, I love that show so much. And I I feel the same way that you do. I think it resonated so much with me because there was no conclusion. Um, and there was such hopefulness and such beauty. And constantly these characters are asking themselves these questions of, you know, what do you do when you're presented with something that you cannot explain and mm-hmm. that is impossible to grasp because you just don't have the tools? I don't think that's just applicable to the scenario in The Leftovers where you have like 2% of the world's population disappear without knowing <laughs> right. why or how. <laughs> okay, back to your podcast. Yes, <laughs> Although I sorry. could totally talk to you about The Leftovers. I could geek out on this for a really long time. I'm going to restrain myself. You said that in some way this season reflects the journey that you are on spiritually. Was there anybody whose story you told this season that helped change your journey? Yeah, I think there were a couple of stories. Uh, There's Mastermind Story, which is the first of the season. He's a rapper. He's a rapper, producer, artist. um, And he tells a story about waking up every morning and praying and running in order to ground himself and find um, strength mentally uh, before he becomes a father. 
I began to say my prayers and, and, and set my intentions and, and, and really trying to calm my mind. I would have my shoes right there in front of me. I would just step outside and get myself together, and then I would just run. And I think that hearing his story made me understand what value ritual can have in someone's life. I think I I have always been pretty dismissive of ritual, especially when it comes to spirituality and religion. And living in a year where there are no markers of time, having ritual create that marker and create moments where you're forced to pause and reflect, um, I think is really beautiful. And it's making me think about what my rituals are. Um, I do share running with masterminds. So getting back into that after not having been able to walk um, is also particularly special. Wow, yeah. And then the other story is the last of the season. And I don't want to spoil it too much. It's with Anusha Ansari. She's the first Muslim astronaut to go into space. And Mm. I think that she helped me see what it really means to glimpse God. And I'm appreciative of the change in my own perspective, and I'm glad that I can see that beauty now. Thanks again, Amisha Youssef. You can find episodes from the new season of Tell Them I Am wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, Misha brings on one of her producers, Mary Knopf, to play a little game of Who Said That? Stay with us. Are you an audacious entrepreneur with a world-changing idea? Then join us this May for the virtual How I Built This Summit hosted by me. We'll have interviews with some of the best-known entrepreneurs out there and community-building sessions to meet other creative thinkers like you. Thank you to Dell Technologies, a supporting sponsor of the How I Built This Summit. For more information, head to summit.npr.org. So we've got Misha Youssef here. She is host of the podcast Tell Them I Am. And Misha, who's joining you to play this game? One of my favorite people on earth, Mary Knopf. If you don't know her name, you will very soon. She was executive producer on the season of Tell Them I Am. And do you think she's going to be a worthy competitor for you? I don't know. I was really worried that I was definitely going to lose this game because I haven't looked up from <laughs> from um, my phone scrolling Instagram and making this show uh, for the mm. last like couple of months. But she just told me right before that... She also hasn't paid any attention to the news. Amazing. (laughs) So you're both superbly qualified. Um, Mary, it's so good to have you here (laughs) along with Misha. Thank you, Ari. I'm so excited. Okay. Do you know how this game works? It's called Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? The rules are very simple. I'm going to give you three quotes from the weekend news. You have to guess who said it or fill in the blank or give us the context and just kind of yell out the answers. There is no buzzer. There are no points. The winner gets nothing. The stakes are very high. You ready? It's for our reputation. Yes. It's for your <laughs> reputation. Your reputation is on the line. Wonderful. Okay. Here is your first quote. Tell me what or who this is about. Measuring more than four feet, the furry giant should be easy to spot. But he vanished from an English garden last weekend, and the police are treating his disappearance as an abduction. Is this the royal family? (laughs) English garden? I wish it were about the royal family. That's such a good guess. It is not the royal family. Is it about a fox? Close. It's about an animal that a fox might eat. Cat? A squirrel? Four feet. (laughs) Well, you know, typically these animals are not four feet either. That's what makes... Darius, 
a Guinness World Record holder, so remarkable. What kind of an animal is Darius? A squirrel. Mm. A rabbit? Yes. Congratulations, Mary. <laughs> Darius is the longest rabbit in the world. And he went missing on Saturday. According to his owner, he is an old man that has not lost his sparkle. He was insured for 1.6 million, I believe that's dollars, not pounds. He traveled with a bodyguard when he did public appearances. He is retired and police are investigating this disappearance. So if you encountered a four-foot rabbit in a dark alley, I don't know, adorable or terrifying? Terrifying. Uh Terrifying, terrifying, says Misha. Yeah. Terrifying, says Mary. This is such a depressing story to start this game. <laughs> oh, it gets better. It gets way better. Okay, so that was one point for Mary. You ready for the second one? Oh, yes. I want you to fill in the blank in this quote. Blank just posts ridiculous sound bites like this for clout, and he has no respect for epistemology. This was a tweet. Who was the tweet about? For epistemology... Yeah, this now sounds like a philosophy class. Mm. Is it a philosopher? Uh, it is actually a corporate account. Amazon. Tweeting about Amazon. a scientist. No? No. <sighs> Here's a hint. They had a Twitter beef. Oh, my God. Is this is this supposed to be a, like, is beef the hint? or <laughs> beef, beef is, is the, the hint. hint. Beef, beef. Are you familiar with a brand of frozen Philly cheesesteaks? Known as Steakum. <laughs> is that what it is? So I take it is you're not, not familiar. <laughs> I have IBS. That is not in my vocabulary. <laughs> I will still award the point if you can name the celebrity scientist that Steakum was having Twitter beef with. Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> scientist, really? <laughs> I just heard celebrity. A celebrity scientist. Sorry, this is so hard. <laughs> this is so hard. This is so hard. Okay, when someone asked Stakem where this beef came from, the account replied, just sick of Neil's games. Is it Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yes! <laughs> Point to Misha. <laughs> it was a journey, but we got wow. there. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about brands on Twitter, like, getting into it with scientists? Pro? Con? Con. Yeah. I mean, I think corporations should probably not have too much of a Twitter personality whenever whenever they have the option. Mm. Okay. So we've got one point for Misha, <laughs> one point for Mary. This is the whole game. Okay. Blank faked having a personal assistant so he didn't have to attend events he didn't want to go to. Who... Is it? God, this is actually really common, I feel. like <laughs> It's a great idea, frankly. Um, it's going to take us back to the UK, uh-oh. where we started with the giant rabbit. And is this about the royal family? It is not <laughs> the royal family. <laughs> Shall I give you a hint? He famously played Doctor Who. Oh my God, oh, I don't know anything. <laughs> Mary, you're going to get this. Does he have brown hair? Yeah, he does. Can we phone a friend? <laughs> Do you want to phone a yeah. friend? I don't know. I've never done Who Said That Before. And so I, sure, why why not? Misha, phone a friend. <gasps> yes. I have just the person. <laughs> I hope she answers. Oh, she will. But if your friend does not know the answer, I think the point goes to Mary. I think oh, that's how we're going to go with it. That's just so not fair, but. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Arwen. I know you know the answer. I need her to pick up. Hello. Oh my god, Arwen, I'm on It's Been a Minute with Ari, and we're playing Who Said That, 
And there's a question that I know you know the answer to, and we've broken all the rules of the game and phoned a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Who is this friend of yours, Misha? So it's Arwen Nix. Um, She is creative director at Dustlight, and she was the editor on this season of Tell Them I Am. Okay. Okay, so someone faked having a personal assistant so he wouldn't have to go to events that he didn't want to go to. And he used to play... Uh, Doctor, Doctor Who. The question, oh, who used to play? This is like my one pop culture blind spot. I knew Ooh. she wasn't going to be oh, into it. no. I have no idea. Wait, wait, what's the name that you just said? David Tennant. Oh, oh success. You got it. That's it. She got it. Okay, thank you, Arwen. <laughs> the only Doctor Who I know. <laughs> Dang. That's amazing. Misha. You pulled it out. The point and the win. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm going to hang up on you now, Arwen. I love you. Okay, love you too. Bye. (laughs) And Arwen is our unofficial winner. She is. And for playing today, you get bragging rights until the next time you play Who Said That with us. Misha and Mary, thank you both so much. Thank Thank you, Ari. Ari. That was so much fun. Hi, this is Ari's Aunt Darlene. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Each week, listeners send us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey, Sam, it's Michelle. And the best part of my week is I get to call you one year later. The farm is doing well. We've got calves again. Cavies, say hi. Cavies, can you say hi? And we've made it. We made it through COVID. The farm crew have been vaccinated and the calves are doing well. And I'm so thrilled that I'm able to call you in 2021. The best thing that happened to me this week was when I finally got to see my freshly vaccinated mother after 14 months apart. She forgot to give me a hug. And that's because she was too excited and happy to finally meet her new grand puppy, Shumai. Hey Sam, this is Frances from Maryland. And the best part of my week was that we got to visit my daughter's first family. She's an adoptee and got to spend a week watching her play with her sister and with her mama. And it was really beautiful. My name's Matthew, and I live in beautiful Carbondale, Colorado. I work as the chef at a fairly large preschool. The best thing that happened to me this week is when I went to go deliver lunch to my two-year-old class today, one of them said, Thank you, Chef Maddie. I love you. And it was the first fully formed sentence I've ever heard from her. My heart almost exploded today. It was amazing. Hi, Sam. This is Barbara calling from Houston. The best thing that happened to me this week and honestly, all year, was that I attended live concerts by my favorite, favorite, favorite band ever, the Mavericks. Saturday night was a religious experience. They were so good that I cried. I have missed this so much. And I'm so grateful to have been there to witness and be part of this magic. Thanks so much for everything you do on the show and for keeping us sane in this super easy and chill year. Have a great day. Bye.
love hearing those sounds of spring and rebirth and reopening. And the best thing that happened to me this week is along similar lines, I pulled the first spring radish out of my garden. Thanks to those listeners you heard there, Barbara, Matthew, Francis, Eunice, and Michelle. And listeners, you can send your best thing to us at any time during the week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to samsanders at npr.org. This week, the show is produced by Janae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Liam McBain. Special thanks this week to Mel Reeves and Satara Strong-Allen. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss, the senior vice president of programming at NPR, is Anya Grundman. Okay, Sam's back on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hang in there. I'm Ari Shapiro. Talk soon. <laughs> 